Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. And I don't know about you, but it's nice to be able to sit here as I am in Leeds with no sweat dripping down my face. I haven't got the fans turned on. The curtains are gloriously open. I don't have to worry about 40 degree heat outside. Uh, Dan O'Donoghue, our Westminster editor, is here with us uh, today. Dan, how was the great heat wave of 2022 for you in, uh, in, in based in London? Oh, it was brutal, Rob. I'm not going to lie. Um, being from the north myself, uh, I'm used to milder weather. I think London's got its own microclimate at times. And I foolishly went into uh, Westminster at the back end of last week in a suit. Um, ended up being a, a puddle by the end of the day, I think. So I uh, sheltered sheltered in my flat at the start of this week. But um, yeah, it was, it was pretty horrific. I'm not going to lie. It's been pretty shocking, uh, shocking stuff, hasn't it? I guess it's kind of uh, shows how much of a kind of ramshackle, archaic building Westminster is. Because like, there's no there's no air conditioning, is it, or anything like that? No, not at all. I mean, the I mean, as, as our listeners might have might have seen or heard, that the palace has kind of fallen to bits. Really, there's been so many kind of reviews about um, modernising it in some way, but it just never seems to get done. And and as I say, it's all kind of uh, old stonework, and you know, you're lucky if uh, some of the windows open. I mean, that the window in, in my office in there it's, it opens a crack, so <laughs> you can't really get much air in at all. So um, yeah, it's not the most ideal place to work at times. That does not sound great. But uh, being in Westminster, uh, you will have been watching this week the final Prime Minister's Question Time from uh, our outgoing uh, Premier Boris Johnson, and it was a it was a pretty rowdy affair, wasn't it? It was. It's, it's always a bit of a rowdy affair, but I, I did think, I mean, I don't know what you thought, Rob, but I thought it was a bit, um, I, I can't think of the right word, but, you know, given only a week and a half, two weeks ago, a lot of these MPs were, you know, resigning en masse and releasing pretty damning uh, resignation letters. They all gave him a massive cheer when he arrived in the chamber. Um, and then the actual proceedings itself, it was just a normal kind of PMQs, but the end was a bit bizarre where he kind of, signed off with a ream of policy ideas and, and, and bits of advice for whoever succeeds him. And he ended by saying, uh, hasta la vista, baby, channeling uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger from Terminator. And I think every Tory MP got to the feet to clap, except uh, Theresa May. She, she stood on her feet, but she just kind of folded her arms, which <laughs> obviously tells, uh, tells a big story about uh, how she views uh, the Boris Johnson years. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you can only assume that a lot of the MPs, Conservative MPs, who were very loyal to him up until the point that it became apparent that they couldn't be anymore, and they they then they called for him to go. And a lot of them, presumably, have now it, were among those applauding in the chamber. I mean, I think about Miriam Cates, who's the MP, Red Wall MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge in South Yorkshire. She was ultra loyal to Boris Johnson right up until the end, a few hours before he announced he was going to resign, she said, actually, we can't go on like this anymore. But then earlier this week in the Commons, I saw that she blamed, I think it was a coalition of the media, Labour MPs and those within her own party for booting him out. And she said, uh, no one no one has never lied or something along those lines, suggesting that maybe she thinks getting rid of 
Boris Johnson wasn't the right thing to do after all. But we've, um, I mean, you've been speaking to another red wall Northern Conservative this week, haven't you? Tell me what, uh, and that's coming up in the podcast a bit later. What, what, who have you been talking to? Yeah, so I had a chat with um, a Yorkshire MP, uh, Nick Fletcher, who he kind of quite boldly said, actually, uh, I think in June, when there was obviously mountain pressure for Boris to go, he, he kind of warned colleagues and said, look, if, if he goes, then so does levelling up. And, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of reports around this, whether the policy will be shelved or, you know, it won't become as big a priority. So I was quite keen to hear what he had to say about that. And he seemed a bit reassured. He said, he, you know, he'd had private conversations with Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. And he said he, you know, was was pleased that they had signed up to these um, these kind of demands that the Northern Research Group of MPs had put to both candidates saying, you know, we want a minister for the North and, and various other things. He, he said for now, he, you know, he's, he's pretty confident that that agenda will carry on. Um, but it was, it was just quite an interesting change of heart, I suppose, within the space of two and a half weeks to, to now kind of, you know, he's, he's fuller behind uh, both of the candidates that, that are running. Um, but I think the Tories are always quite good at that, aren't they? You know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. I think it's, uh, you know, they, they always seem to unite behind the, the, the new leader. That's very much the way of it, isn't it? And we'll be, in the next few days, the uh, first regional hustings between Rishi Sunak and uh, Liz Truss will be in Leeds. Obviously, uh, Liz Truss is uh, the city where she was educated at the uh, on the mean streets of uh, Round Hay in, uh, in in North Leeds where she where she grew up so uh, there'll be a lot of attention on the north I'm sure and and as well as that you've been delving into some quite interesting sort of policy policy debate haven't you about the issue of universal basic income for people who don't know what that is could you just explain who you've been who you've been talking to and what 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 they're arguing yeah, so we've also had a chat with uh, Dave Beck, who is a professor at the University of Salford, and he was telling us about um, there's a big conference going ahead later this month in Manchester, looking at this, uh, as you say, this universal basic income idea, which uh, I think has been trialled in some Scandinavian countries. And in Scotland, there's been talk, the SNP are very keen on it. But the idea broadly is that everyone, no matter you know what, what wealth you had, would get a set income per year from the government. And that would be for you to to do whatever you wanted with. But it, it kind of ties in with a lot of other things. There's a big push for this right to food. And uh, obviously, you know, there's massive energy insecurity at the moment. So the idea really is that people would have enough money in their pockets to be able to kind of feed, clothe themselves and and have heating in their, in their houses. I, strangely actually, in a, when I previously worked for, uh, a bunch of Scottish newspapers during those kind of COVID briefings that we all got used to uh, every day. I um, had one a couple of years back and asked Rishi Sunak directly about this because obviously at the time we had furlough. Uh, that was something that was completely unthought of before, you know, the state paying the wages of the majority, a lot of workers. So I asked him directly, you know, if, if this is a policy that he would ever get on board with. And he at the time said, you know, this is not something that would be right. But as I say, Dave Beck was pretty positive on it. He said he believed that we were kind of at a, a 1935 stage just 10 years before the creation of the NHS. He said there's mountain pressure for something like this. And he said, you know, he wouldn't be surprised if he saw it coming down the, uh, down the road very soon. It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose it's quite often the way that ideas that seem completely out there develop a bit of a head of steam and a critical mass and, and then become... Uh, inevitable and you, you wonder how, how uh, people could ever argue against it and who knows maybe universal basic income might be one of those ideas so a couple of fascinating guests let's uh, get into the interviews and hear what they have to say 
Last week, the owners of Doncaster Sheffield Airport, PEO, dropped an out-of-the-blue bombshell when it said it was undertaking a six-week strategic review to consider the future of the airport, which opened in 2005. The move has caused huge concern in the region, with MPs, business groups and the Mayor all demanding answers. With me now to discuss all this and more is Don Valley MP Nick Fletcher. Nick, welcome. I suppose, would you mind just start, starting by bringing us up to speed on, on where the situation is at? Well, as you say, it was a bit of a bombshell uh, last last week, and since then, I've been seeking meetings with um, as many people as possible that are involved in the airport, uh, mainly Peel Holdings and uh, Oliver Coppard, the mayor of the uh, Combined Authority. I've been putting regular posts out on social media, keeping people up to date with where I am with the meetings and. Uh, the most important meeting, I believe, is actually going to happen today um, at one o'clock. And what do you expect out of that meeting? Uh, at this moment in time, it's um, it's not looking extremely extremely positive. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can extend the consultation period. I think that's extremely important. With Peel uh, have come over with a six-week consultation period, just as Parliament goes into recess, which is extremely unfortunate it's also the busiest time of the year for the airport too so there's been an awful lot of concern with my constituents with regards to their holidays so uh, i don't think it's been i don't think it's been handled very well at all and i'll be pushing for that uh, consultation period to to be extended um for uh, the minimum of 12 weeks i think it's uh, i think it's the least that uh, Peel holdings can do um given the effect of, that, of what this will have to the, the region. One of your colleagues, uh, Scott Benton, led a debate uh, earlier this year touching on the importance of regional airports and noted the impact of the closure of Blackpool Airport and, and what it had on the town and the area. I mean, do you fear the same kind of wider knock-on effect if, if this airport were to go? I think it's extremely negative. I mean, asking, um, asking people to come and invest uh, in a town with an airport is obviously a, a, a huge pull, and um, it will it will have um, it, it will have consequences. I mean, Doncaster has just been given city status. I do think uh, Doncaster is on the up, and uh, I do think we're, 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 the location of Doncaster and the actual uh, leveling up agenda will help it immensely. But uh, the airport is a fundamental part of this. And I'm doing all I can to safeguard the airport, the jobs, and uh, and, and the supply chain jobs that, that go with that too. You know, the move by Peel has shades of its previous ownership of Teesside International Airport in the northeast. I think in that case, uh, the mayor, Ben Houchen, led a £40 million deal to take over the airport in 2018. I just wondered, if it came to it, would you back or like to see a similar move uh, in your in your part of the world? Yes, I, uh, I went up to see Ben yesterday at Teesside. I had a really good meeting with him. Uh, he explained uh, how things had evolved up there and the success that he's actually actually making of it at the moment. I do believe it's in uh, the mayor's powers. I mean, mayors uh, want these devolved powers, and I think it's uh, I think it's um, time that um, this time we've got to we've got to use it. So I'll be pressing Oliver Coppard to do all he can um, to work with Peel and to see if we can safeguard the airport's future. 
But if if it came to it, as I say, Peel were were determined just to to close it down. Would you would you back a move to to take it into public ownership? If that's what's required, yes. I mean, I don't want to preempt the discussions uh, this afternoon, but uh, yeah, I think it's um, whatever it, whatever it takes to keep that keep that open, whether it's uh, public ownership, whether it's a, a, an external investor, somebody who can really make a go of the airport, or whether it's um, a part ownership and that that way forward. But um, but yeah, whatever it takes, I, I will I will do all I can. To, to keep Doncaster Sheffield Airport open. And while we've got you, Nick, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Tory leadership race and specifically levelling up because mm-hmm. there's been reports in recent days that when Boris Johnson leaves number 10, so does levelling up. I just wondered if you were worried at all. No, not worried at all. I think uh, any of the new leaders that um, that come forward, and I've, I've asked this question at, uh, at many of the hustings, I was elected uh, on, two, on two promises. One was getting Brexit done, and the second was levelling up and being a red wall seat. That's um, obviously extremely important. Uh, I do believe the new Prime Minister, whoever that may be, um, has a duty to uh, complete the manifesto. It was the manifesto that we were elected elected on. It's the manifesto that um, we should continue with. We've had an extreme setback for two years because of COVID, but that's, uh, that's not stopping me pushing forward locally, and I'm pretty sure it will not be stopping any any future prime minister as well it's so so important so so important for the country not just for the uh, my constituency but for the country as a whole we want a fair um, everybody should have a fair opportunity wherever they live in, in our wonderful country you previously said that if we lost our prime minister we'd lose brexit the nation's recovery and leveling up i just wondered what had changed your mind in, in the last month or so I think the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is was fundamental fundamental to that. I do believe we're obviously in a different situation now. Things things have changed. Uh, Brexit is done. There's obviously issues around Northern Ireland protocol uh, and things that need, need that need addressing. But we've left um, the European Union, so I do think that part is done. And as I say, with the hustings that I've had, I'm quite um, quite confident that any new leader will. Uh, Will, will will help me move uh, Doncaster forward. The Northern Research Group of MPs has you know, managed to get support for, from all the remaining candidates for a list of, of their demands. Um, and they include things like, you know, a minister for the North, a levelling up formula, uh, maybe similar to the Barnet formula in Scotland and, and the devolved nations to kind of target certain Northern areas for, for investments and improvements. I just wondered what, what you made of those proposals and, and what it would mean, I suppose, to have a... A minister for the north around around the cabinet table. I don't think a minister for north is, is, is important. Yeah, I did doing some good work around that. It's something that I would uh, I, well, I do back. Uh, we need a big voice um, in the north. I, I it's it's important. The, the investment in the south has been colossal over the years, and we really need somebody to really start shouting up. And as I say. Make sure that the new prime minister does stick with the levelling up agenda. I'm sure they will, but we need someone to make sure that uh, they're held to account about that. We're we're a large group. We had a fantastic conference earlier on in the year. Uh, it was extremely well attended, and uh, we've we've got a lot to say. Uh, but with the right prime minister, I'm sure we can uh, we can move the north forward. How will you kind of judge success um, in the north? You know, whenever whoever wins the leadership race, um, what what will you be looking for? And uh, you know, in policy wise, and and in what they say about the north. 
I think we just need a continuation of what's actually already started. I mean, the lovely, and we've had years and decades and decades of neglecting the North. We're not going to turn that over in one term. But people need to see that there's a genuine push to increase the aspirations and opportunity of people's lives in the North. We're seeing that with the education investment areas. We're seeing that with the levelling up funds that are coming our way. It's not all about money. It is about other things too. But uh, there is definitely um, a, a move to, to level up the North. And I'll just ask people to be, to be patient. As I say, 40 years, 60 years of neglect, you cannot turn around in two years, especially since we've had COVID to deal with. But we are seeing the seeds being planted and they will flourish. And my job is to make sure that, uh, that this happens. And as I say, myself and colleagues, um, who are in similar seats, the NRG, and hopefully a Minister for the North will make sure that this this happens, but it is going to take time. And finally, have you got a preference for who you'd like to see in number 10? I was quite open with who I wanted to um, to, to, to uh, be Prime Minister in the last um, in the last few votes. Right up until this moment, I did support Kemi. I put that out on Twitter and social media. Uh, I did say at this moment I would uh, I would be keeping my own counsel on this. And um, yeah, that's that's all I'm going to say at this moment in time. But we've got three extremely good candidates. I wish them all well. And I think we should be very proud as Conservatives that we've been able to put a field out as we had eight candidates started and they were all, all extremely good. Just over 200 years ago in the centre of Manchester, hundreds of working men and women gathered in what is now St Peter's Square to make radical demands for parliamentary reform. The meeting came on the back of war, spiralling prices and an economic slump. Later this month, a short walk from that site at the Friends Meeting House, academics and politicians will meet to make a series of fresh, radical parliamentary demands, again against the backdrop of war and a cost of living crisis. With me now to discuss all this is Dr. Dave Beck, a lecturer of social policy at the University of Salford. Dave, welcome. So first off, I wondered if you could outline what you'll be discussing at this conference. So the event's aimed at policymakers and others in local and regional government to come together to discuss uh, how a universal basic income, which is a new form of social security provision, that is currently being trialled across various parts of the world. Um, How a universal basic income could revolutionise the lives of people in the North. We'd hope to make this something that, you know, eventually could be tested in the North and then could possibly be rolled out across all of the UK. So just for our listeners, could you perhaps just break down what universal basic income actually is and how it would work? So a universal basic income has, has got... Uh, three core tenets really that that it's universal that everybody's everybody's entitled to it everybody gets it nobody's excluded it's also unconditional so there's no conditions attached to it which is what we currently see with uh, the universal credit system um, that we have in place now which is very uh, based on people's behavioralism uh, and it is conditional so an unconditional basic income or a universal basic income is is exactly that it is an income which is paid to everybody unconditionally to help people meet their basic needs. And what's really important about it as well is that it's non-withdrawable. So what we see with the universal credit system that we have now is dependent upon people's behaviour, 
people's income can be withdrawn from them or suspended. Um, that plunges people into poverty uh, almost immediately, whereas a universal basic income has none of that, has no trap doors in it. It's there, it's paid to people every month uh, as a right of citizenship. Is there any kind of thought about what the rate of this and what level this universal basic income would be set at? I mean, how would it be set? Would it be set independently of governments or would it be kind of a, a review body that would set the rates each year? How would it How would it actually work in, in, the, in the detail of it? The group that I am part of, which is the UBI lab, we don't uh, offer a set amount yet. We don't have a, a financial number. Um, however... The trials that have been conducted and the ones that are currently being conducted, like the one in Wales, is is £1,600. You know, it's enough for people to be able to live off. It's enough for people to be able to pay for food. So my research at the University of Salford is based on food bank use and levels of food poverty. Giving people enough money to be able to buy food uh, meets that basic need. And that, you know, is what a universal basic income is aimed at is to be able to provide people with enough so it's, it's not too much it's not you know an excessive amount but it's also not an under uh, un, you know an amount that isn't enough to live on and it would be set ideally by an independent body um you know something such as we, that we have now which sets the national minimum wage level so it would be uprated uh, in line with you know the cost of living which you, at the minute is a really important thing uh, you know that this conference that we are putting together hopes to address is, is how do people actually live now with the rising cost of living we've obviously heard a lot about um, inflation in recent weeks um, you know it's it's creeping up and it's been a point of discussion in the Tory leadership debate where I think only last night some of the candidates were asked about some of the negotiations in the public sector for pay rises and they seem not very keen to to get into that you know obviously there's talk about uh, you know rising wages impacting prices i mean would a universal basic income only add to uh, inflation worries uh, i'm not an economist so my work is in social policy so social policy is really trying to understand how decisions of the government can make people's lives better for me, a universal basic income is exactly that. It does make people's lives better. Um, for an economic answer on levels of inflation, uh, I would have to defer that question to an economist. Uh, but what we do know is uh, a recent report from the Centre for Cities found that people in the north are getting typically £340 uh, worse off than people who live in the South. You know, and that came just on the back of uh, the recent IPPR North report, uh, to the North report, which uh, highlighted that if the same investment had been spent in the North as was spent in the South, that it would have you know, provided uh, people in the North with an extra £61 billion worth of infrastructure spending on things such as you know, railways and roads. Uh, so the government has an approach to levelling up or you know, all the parliamentary candidates at the minute, those vying for the next leader of the Conservative Party will tell you that they are still intent on levelling up. However, what we've seen over the past five years of levelling up has, has, has gone absolutely nowhere in the North. And really, that's what this conference is about, is about addressing how the North uh, needs to find a different way in order to be financially sustainable for the people who live here. And I believe um, at this conference that there is some 
evidence that's been gathered to show that across kind of the red wall and the north there is quite a lot of support for this policy i believe yeah and and i think that's really important um because as we know from you know the 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 red wall that's crumbled uh you know our, our swing voters a lot of work needs to be done in terms of showing how policy can really support people in the north because what we do see is that people tend now towards populist types of uh of, of voting um you know the rise of populism especially in places across the north you know is is seen uh, and what we need to do is try and help people to understand um that you know a universal basic income is something that will be there to benefit them and it will be there to benefit everybody in the long run um you know as the money becomes reinvested back in the community through people spending um you know we, we're starting to see that the, the crumbled red wall areas could even be built back up um there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the ideologies and the political ideologies behind a UBI and trying to show you know people who are traditional conservative voters uh, that a UBI is there to benefit them as well because you know it helps investment it helps people keep spending people can invest time in themselves and go back to university and go and you know change their education and get a better job but it also works very well with you know people who are traditional socialist voters in terms of it provides equality and it's also important to highlight I think that you know for liberal voters uh, you know UBI is, is it gives the ultimate freedom gives people the the ability to say yes or to say no uh, and not be beholden to things such as zero hour contract jobs this policy is uh, obviously supported by the green party and i think the smp have kind of started work to trial elements of this in in scotland i mean i just wondered is there any hint that labor nationally or the conservatives are, are keen or, or interested in this policy at all yeah I, I don't think the conservatives are keen uh and that's because the tradi- you know the usual argument against a ubi is the something for nothing culture which conservatives are you know steadfastly against so from a conservative point of view universal basic income does struggle within our group there aren't very many people who are conservative voters and we don't have any conservative councillors or mp's involved in our group either um which is which is a shame um because there is a real argument for a UBI from a conservative perspective as i said it keeps people spending um it helps people to create stability uh, which you know is key in conservative talk on 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 the left from a socialist perspective there's also an argument against it and that typically typically comes from the idea that if we have a UBI that means that we lose our UBS our universal basic services however it's trying to communicate that to you know socialist voters that a universal basic income can only work with universal basic services as well otherwise you will be trading one payment off for paying for another so the both two sides of the same coin uh, in my position and in terms of the green party yes there's been long term support for ubi from from the greens uh, and that is because or one of the reasons because they support it is the idea that a ubi allows people to develop their well-being over welfare so we see the traditional parties who provide welfare financial welfare well a ubi although it's financial helps people develop their well-being as well so people start to relax more they feel better about themselves and they start to invest themselves in the community 
which is why we see good support from from a green perspective. I mean, do you believe, obviously, we're in the middle of this cost of living crisis and it seems like for a lot of people that, that there's no light at the end of the tunnel at the moment. We've got spiralling rents, food prices and, you know, you name it, it's all in the wrong direction um, f- for most people. I mean, even in the in the middle nowadays, it's people are, are very much struggling to get from one month to the, to the next. I mean, do you think an idea like this is, is going to be received a lot more positively given how many people are struggling to cope nowadays? I think so. And I think that's why we've started to see a lot more trials underway for UBI. We've seen a, a lot more people speaking about UBI as well. Uh, I mean, I work in social policy and have done for the past seven or eight years uh, at different universities. And it was only in the last two or three years that I've even heard of a UBI. Um, and, it, and this is now my area of research. So the more ground, more ground is being gained by UBI discussions, the more trials that happen for universal-based income, although the trial in different elements of it. So as we see in Wales, they're now trialing it on care leavers. Uh, In Finland, they tried it on long-term unemployed people. What we're seeing is all of these different trials are bringing together different pieces of evidence in support of the UBI. So it's different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are starting to be put together. I do think that we are going to see more research being done on UBI over the next 10 years. Um, I do think there will be more trials underway in the next 10 years. And I do think that they are going to contribute to understanding how a UBI could work from different political perspectives, but also from different social welfare perspectives as well. And what it does is it helps us stabilize ourselves through external shocks, you know, the external shocks that come from policy, but also the external shocks that come to our political system and our social system. Think about COVID. I mean, you know, having a universal basic income uh, when COVID first struck and we're all in lockdown would have helped immeasurably uh, with people who, you know, it was okay for me in my job. You know, I could just work remotely, but you can't stack shelves remotely for Tesco. You need to physically be there. And when those industries restrict the amount of staff working in there because of, you know, during lockdown or when certain industries like the hospitality industry closed, you know, those you know, people who were working in those industries really felt the blunt, really felt the brunt of the shock, of the externalized shock. So a universal basic income is something that creates stability in people. And as we know, once people have a level of stability in their lives, they feel better about themselves and they feel more positive stress reduces, um, people's income, you know, inevitably increases. uh, And that also reduces people's stress. People get to spend more time with family. They get to spend more time doing volunteering activities. Community development work improves. So what we can see from, you know, universal basic income is that it has all these massive benefits in the round, which aim to support, you know, not just those politically and socially, but also environmentally as well. I mean, there was obviously back in the 90s a lot of uh, debate around the national minimum wage. And there were, at the time, you know, a lot of people on the opposition to that were saying that it would bankrupt businesses, that it wouldn't be feasible. Um, and obviously now we, we live in a world where we can't really imagine life without a national minimum wage and, and not even a national living wage nowadays. I mean, do you think this debate will ever get to such where, you know, we're in a place where this has been implemented maybe in the next 10, 15 years where people look back and think, you know, how, how on earth did we did we live without this? In my utopian vision or my utopian view of where we are at the minute in terms of universal basic income being, you know, 
an actualized policy. I think we are around about 1935 in terms of when uh, the National Health Service was was in, you know, brought to us. I think we're around about 10 years away from something really substantial changing uh, in terms of how we understand social security. And I, and, I, and I say that because, as I said before, the momentum and the discussion is generating. There's there's lots more people discussing UBI. I was away last week. I was at a um, social policy association conference in Swansea, and there was three or four papers uh, of academics talking about UBI. The year before, and, and the year before that, there was none. You know, so it, you know, in the policymaking community, in the academic community, there's more research being done on it. There's more people trying to understand it. So. I think all these are becoming more relevant. I think it's more strings to the bow. Um, and I think it's all adding to you know, the generation of, of trying to understand how we can change social policy f- really for the better instead of making it so punitive and behavioralist and um, conditional as well. listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and dan o'donoghue and it's produced by daniel j mclaughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.